as I said earlier, some of the measurements that Mengele made were standard scientific anthropological measurements that you'd make, height, weight, facial measurements. But then he crossed the border into this landscape where things were just so horrific that you can't imagine why he would do these and what they were supposed to show. The reason why Jews and others were put into these camps was that people felt they were an inferior group and taking away from German culture, but also they had to legitimize it by having the doctors declare the inferiority. So if the doctors were doing this, you know, people revere doctors a great deal, think that their words are important and must be taken seriously. And so if doctors are legitimizing this, well, it must be true. Maybe I don't agree with it, but if the doctor says it, it must be true. What is up, you beautiful people? You are about to listen to an episode with psychologist Dr. Nancy Siegel, where we dive into the fascinating world of identical twin research and the nature versus nurture debate. Before talking with Dr. Siegel, I had no idea how much studying twins gives us an insight into who we really are, both behaviorally and genetically, and why we are the way we are. And speaking of the way we are, I get the feeling that I'm sensing who you are. That's right. I'm talking to you, the listener, each person playing this episode over the speaker while doing the dishes or listening through AirPods while walking on an inclined treadmill. I sense that in your very being, you are a future Augsworld Premium subscriber, and I'll tell you why. You are either listening to the Augsworld podcast for the first time, have been an avid listener and enjoy the podcast, or you hate listen because you can't stand the sound of my voice or the way I see the world, and you want to see me burn, and that's hot. I love a little burn play. You know that scene in Wolf of Wall Street where the dominatrix is pouring hot wax on Leo and he's screaming, Wolfie! Wolfie! Wolfie, 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 Wolfie. God, does that make me feel alive. Whoever you are, whether you love me or you want to see me burn, you can sink your teeth into more of that feeling with Auxoro Premium. Head to auxoro.supercast.com today for bonus episodes on exciting and controversial topics like the ones you hear on this podcast. Also, you get the ability to become part of the show and submit questions for guests like Dr. Nancy Siegel and exclusive members-only AMAs where you can ask me anything. Head to auxoro.supercast.com today to join the premium gang and get the more that you need. And if you can't subscribe to Auxoro Premium, please leave us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. More ratings are such a big help to push the show through the roof because a good rating nudges the algorithm to show the Auxoro Podcast to more people. It takes less than a minute and the amount it helps the show grow cannot be overstated. And if you leave a creative review, we'll read it and give you a shout out at the end of an upcoming episode. Thank you for whoever you choose to support. This time I sit down with Dr. Nancy Siegel, a renowned psychologist and twin researcher with a deep interest in behavioral genetics and evolutionary psychology. Dr. Siegel was an assistant director of one of the largest twin studies of all time, Born Together, Reared Apart, which changed the public consciousness on twins and overturned conventional ideas on parenting and teaching. She is also the author of seven books on twins, three of which we discuss in detail on this episode of the podcast. The first book we we get into is The Twin Children of the Holocaust, a collection of essays and photographs taken by Dr. Siegel on the twins who survived the brutal medical experiments conducted at Auschwitz death camp by the infamous physician Dr. Joseph Mengele 
aka the angel of death. We also get into Gay Father's Twin Sons, which chronicles the harrowing ordeal that a gay couple endured when trying to gain U.S. citizenship for their twin sons. And lastly, we dive into Deliberately Divided, which details the controversial study where a New York adoption agency separated twins at birth and never told the adoptive parents that they were raising a single twin. It's hard for me to put into words the amount of fascinating insight on twins and human nature that I gained from this conversation with Dr. Siegel, and I hope that you can come away with the same. It was wild, dark, hopeful, and I enjoyed the hell out of this chat. One last note, it was raining torrentially during the first 10 minutes of the podcast that I recorded, and I did everything that I could to lessen the background noise of the rain, closed all the windows, doors, and it was it, it was absolutely pouring and coming down, so it, it, you you will hear that in the background for the first 10 minutes of the podcast, but I promise the quality of the sound gets a lot better after the rain stops, so hang in there. It is a great conversation, well worth it, and without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Dr. Nancy Siegel. Dr. Nancy Siegel, thank you for joining me on the podcast. So where did your fascination with twins begin? What what was your entrance into the, the world of twins? Well, actually, my entrance to the world of twins happened very early in life because I'm a fraternal twin. I have a sister who looks and acts nothing like me. And I was always fascinated with the differences between us because, after all, we shared the parents, we shared the home, we shared friends at school. All of our experiences were the same, and yet we ended up being so different. So when I got to college, I majored in psychology. And I became very interested in genetics because I saw that as the key to explaining why we were so different. And I just fell in love with twin studies. I was assigned a paper in an abnormal psychology class on some form of personal adjustment. And I remembered how difficult it was for me being separated from my sister in kindergarten. Mm. And I looked into that literature and fell in love with it. And the rest is history. I knew the twin studies would be my life. And it has been. Do you remember the first time or maybe an early moment where you became aware that you were a twin? Like where where you first kind of were interacting with your sister and were like, holy shit, like we're we're not the same, you know, we're, we're different than other siblings. You know, it's a great question, Zach. And I can honestly say that I don't remember because In my mind, I always was a twin, but I remember as a small child, my mother explaining that we were fraternal twins, that we would argue over who was fra and who was ternal, things like that. I remember she never told us who was born first. We didn't learn that until we were about seven or eight because she was afraid of fights. Yeah. (laughs) But really, the only people who know for sure that they're a twin or when they learned they were a twin are twins who are raised apart from birth. When they first get a phone call, a letter, an email saying, hello, I think I'm your identical or fraternal twin. So they're the people who can tell you the experience. But for for young children like me who grew up together, there's really no one aha moment realizing that you're different from your non-twin friends. Yeah, yeah. And and just hearing you say that you and your twin couldn't be more different. Before I started reading your work and, and... We'll go into a couple of the books that you've written written recently. It seems so uh, stereotypical and assuming to just say that because of because you're a twin, and this is something that I thought because you're a twin, whether it's fraternal or identical, you must be on some crazy frequency of similarity, and you have everything in common, and you're going to be, you know, essentially uh, drawing from the same well. Like there's something 
something there that both twins are drawing from. Yep. But that doesn't sound like it's the case, especially yeah. not for you. No, it's not the case for me. And it's not the case for the majority of fraternal twins who are no more alike genetically than ordinary brothers and sisters, which is to say they share half their genes on average by descent. So I think it's so important to distinguish the two twin types. We have identical, who result from the splitting of a single fertilized egg within the first two weeks after conception. These twins share virtually all their genes, both males, both females. With fraternal twins, they result when a woman releases two eggs simultaneously, and they're separately fertilized by different sperm from the husband or father or partner, whoever you want to yeah. call it. And there are actually lots of fascinating varieties within both twin types. And we're going to get to one of them when you talk about my book, Gay Fathers, Twin Sons, because it's one of the most fascinating variations of fraternal twinning that I discuss in that particular book. But you're right. People think of twin as similarity, commonality, togetherness, and that comes from the identical twins. It does not come from the fraternals, but I think in people's minds, it's largely confused. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is, um, it, especially as a, a brother. I'm, I'm one of three brothers, and I did grow up with some twins who played sports, and they were identical twins. And so in my mind, I, I always thought that uh, although there are twins that do report having these crazy connections in sports and you hear some, uh, I, I think it was Marquis, Marcus and Maurice Morris, who were twins playing in the NBA. They talk about having kind of this like telepathic understanding on the court when they were younger of being connected. Well, hold on. Hold on. I don't believe in any kind of telepathy, whether it involves yeah. twins or non-twins. But I know what those Morris twins are talking about. They're just mislabeling it as telepathy. Identical twins, because they perceive the world the same way and process information the same way, they often think alike, and it gives the impression of some kind of parapsychological connection. But when you're so similar and you spend a lot of time with one another, you get to know the other person quite well. And so you can anticipate how they're going to maneuver a certain play on the on the field or something like that. And I believe that that's real. You know, you can even see it sometimes between husbands and wives or, or romantic partners or best friends. They have certain kinds of understandings where they know what the other one is thinking, what the other will be about to do. Twins seem to have it to a greater extent and over many, many more domains of mm. behavior than anyone else. So that's what the Mars yeah. twins are talking about. And I know that we hear about these things, these amazing similarities between twins. One twin heard a phone call and knew it was the other twin ringing. And, but, you know, when you go back and carefully look at these, if you're on your phone with twins, your twin 10 times a day, the phone rings, it's pretty high probability that it's going to be your twin yeah. calling. And we don't hear about the misses where, you know, the phone rang, it was not your twin, you thought it was. We don't hear about the misses. Yeah. See, and these things are always reported to us after the fact. So I think we have to be very careful about how we interpret those kinds of things. So those instances of perceived telepathy, whether it's by an outside observer like myself or coming from the actual twins themselves, that is more of a reverse engineering of circumstance where, for example, let's say you, you want your twin to be somewhere on the court and they just naturally know where you where they want you to be. You're reading the situation almost before it unfolds. It's less because of some mental, uh, you know, telepathic connection, like something unexplainable and more that those twins are seeing things in a sport that they both have hundreds or thousands of hours of experience. And their right. their genetics are somehow mapping right. these 
circumstances to play out where it seems like it's forethought or or like some sort of like futuristic perception. Yeah, I I think that's a fair enough way of putting it. And I've heard this enough from twin athletes. I love hearing from twin athletes because they have so much to tell us along these lines. But I think it's no mistake that there are so many twin athletes out there and they talk about how they grew up with a 24-hour practice partner, which other kids didn't Mm. have. And I know that uh, the Minnesota Twins now have a pair of twins. The uh, the Joyce Twins are both on their team. And I think in San Francisco, there's a pair, uh, Taylor and Tyler Rogers mm. are both uh, on the San Francisco team. So, you know, I think that, that coaches are very wise to invite twins because I think that not only are they a strong team in and of themselves within the larger team, but they can confuse the other side. They can confuse the opposition, which one is which, you know, they don't play the same position. So I think that there's a lot of advantages. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining a situation where there's a twin that comes out of the game and, and let's say baseball, for instance, and you want to put the same player back in, but you just use their twin instead. And somehow, you know, you don't even have to switch jerseys, assuming you, you still have the same name. And, you know, you could, you could do a lot of uh, magic tricks with that. Well, well, you can get into trouble for that. Yeah. They have different numbers. I mean, you don't want to substitute yeah. one for the other. I'm not in favor of that. But I know what you're talking yeah, about. But th- th- yeah, but that is that is a fascinating point that when you, when you rise to the level of being an elite athlete, you are obviously blessed with good genetics, with the hard work. But then to have a partner that mirrors you in a way where you can become self-aware of your own weaknesses because one of the hardest things to do as an athlete is to become self-aware because you never really get to play yourself and the fact that you can play a version of yourself i imagine just helps exponentially in your development and being able to play off of each other 24 hours a day talk about it experience it play And, and that's an interesting point you raise in a related way because you know, a lot of us imagine what our lives would have been like had we not done things that we've made, not made the choices we have. What if we married someone else? What if we'd gone to a different school, taken a different job, moved to a different state? You know, we all have these forks in the road and we can only imagine how our lives might have turned out. But with identical twins raised apart, they actually see a version of themselves. So for example, we've had twins where one was raised in Australia and one raised in England. And so they can see how their lives might have played out in a totally different culture. See, so it, it's a fascinating aspect to being an identical twin who's been raised apart from birth. Yeah, yeah, that to to have someone who could be in a different situation and, and being able to see yourself play. Like, for example, if I was born in uh, if if I was uh, born in let's say Ohio instead of New York, and I had a twin that was born in New York, and then. We both had different jobs, different lifestyles. To be able to see that, uh, it, it would be pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. And I remember one woman who was an identical twin raised apart coming to the University of Minnesota, where I spent nine years on the Minnesota study for twins raised apart. And she, they were very attractive women. And she said she always felt too heavy. But her twin sister was 10 pounds heavier, and she thought her sister looked great. See, so there's another advantage to twinship, you can see yourself as other people really mm. see you. And you can see how a certain outfit looks on you or how a certain hair looks yeah. on you, truly. Because we can only look in a mirror, right? We can't really see ourselves. Yeah, that, that is that is such a, a weird aspect of photography and videography that you're constantly seeing yourself in these photos and you look at yourself in a mirror. And then if you 
if someone mirrors an image, because you can mirror it back to you to see how you actually look to an observer, it's almost jarring because you're like, who the hell is that? That that doesn't look like me because I'm so used to seeing it. I'm so used to seeing it the other way around. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's it, twinship raises a lot of very curious and interesting and informative yeah. situations that I think many people don't. Yeah. So so one of the the most recent books that you've written, because I mentioned there have been a couple, I wanted to get into twin children of the Holocaust first. And before I preface it, I just want to say that it's such a uh, a deep, dark and, and meaningful read that technically you could finish the book in, you know, maybe 30 or 45 minutes just with the the amount of text in it. But looking at the photos, I was just spending an extra, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with each chapter, just going back and looking at the annotations and, and making the connections between the, the twins that were photographed upon uh, escaping from Auschwitz, which we'll get into, and then the photos that you took 40 years later, and just kind of like comparing those two. It's, it's such a a compelling read and watch, I guess you would call, because the, the it, it's an annotated uh, photographic collection with essays that you provide, and it, it's such a compelling read. Well, thank you very much. It's a book that means a great deal to me, and you know, as a Jewish twin, I think what drew me to attend that event, which is what the book is centered on, it's the 40th anniversary reunion of the Holocaust twins, 40 years to the day of their liberation by Soviet forces. And what drew me to that event was that I'm a Jewish twin and another time or place, my twin sister and I would have been on that railroad mm. ramp in Mengele's uh, selection. So yeah, it's an annotated photo collection. I'm gonna just hold up yes, the cover please. for a second if that's okay. See how thin the book is. Uh, I really wanted the photographs to speak for themselves and there were about a hundred or so, 105 photographs because I wanted I wanted them to speak for themselves, but there is enough text provided so that you have the context and what the photo is actually showing. You know, I took these photographs in 1985 and I took them also not just at Auschwitz-Birkenau, but also at the Yad Vashem public hearing that followed immediately after to look at Mengele's war crimes. And I talk about the testimony from a number of the twins. And then I followed the twins to an inquest in November of that year of 85, when the news of Mengele's death by drowning in 1975 was exposed and people wanted to review the forensic evidence to be sure yeah. it was really him. And then, of course, there were some events and things I attended with the twins after that. Um, the most recent event I attended was actually July 16th of this year, just a little wow. over a month ago, when I traveled to Australia for literally two days, Zach. It took me 18 hours to get there for a two-hour event, but it was spectacular. The oldest living Mangala twin is now 99. Wow. Her twin sister passed away a few years ago. Her name is Annetta Abel, and she's written about in the book. And she herself wrote a book called The Mosaic of My Life. And I was invited to her book signing and to give a talk. And no one thought I'd really go because it's expensive and it's time consuming. But I was so drawn to it, just like I was drawn to that event yeah. in 1985. And I went and it was so fulfilling to meet her and the family. But let me just backtrack a bit to say why I did this book. I had so many of these photographs and they're unique. They're nowhere else. And this is a living human record of a very tragic time in our history. And I also wanted to present the humanity behind the horror. You know, many people know that there were twin experiments. They know about Mengele's horrific mm. activities, but they don't know the people. 
And I wanted to make that vivid. So I don't go into the experiments much at all, but I do go into the people and the places they visited and just why this was important to get out there. You know, many of the, these Holocaust twins were among the youngest mm. of the survivors, but that was 40 years ago and they're getting older and many have passed away since I knew them. And I think that if we don't get their story out now as a way of informing people, as a way of preventing the recurrence of this kind of experimentation. I was just compelled to do it for so many years. Yeah, I'm, and I'm so grateful that you could get these stories out. And I was actually supposed to interview a Holocaust survivor back in February of this year, Rose Schindler. She's based in San Diego, and, and she actually passed away a couple weeks before. Uh, and she was hanging on for a very long time. She was obviously a huge fighter considering what she's been through. And, and I know that we're going to get to the time soon where there aren't going to be any living survivors. So so I'm, I'm very grateful. And I know other people are as well that material like this can be put out before they pass away. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very grateful to Academic Studies Press for taking this project on. And I have to say that it's a beautifully produced book. It, it, it exceeded my repu- my expectations. Uh, it's on beautiful white glossy paper. It's slim. You can read it in maybe 50 minutes to an hour. But it's just seeing those photographs there, just really, every time I look at them, I, I get so emotionally uh, involved in, in those yeah. stories. Yeah. And just... Uh... As a, a quick overview, I already mentioned, but it, it's a collection of essays and annotated photographs, twin children of the Holocaust. Uh, and these photographs were taken by you of the twins who survived the brutal medical experiments conducted by Joseph Mengele at Auschwitz. And you you traveled to Poland, Israel, uh, and there was also something in uh, Indiana, the the conference in Indiana, where you, yes, the testimony. That was the, that was the inquest. In, no, no. The testimony Sorry, yeah. was the Yad Vashem. The inquest was a review by forensic pathologists, some twins, some medical specialists, some historians, as to the evidence that showed that Mengele had dr- died by mm. drowning in Brazil in 1979. So you've had these photos since 1985. W- I have. Was there a, a moment or a day where like something flipped in you where you said, I just have to get these out now, as opposed to waiting five yes. years or five years ago? What what was the thing that that sparked that in the moment need to, to get these out? Well, actually, I regretted not doing it so earlier. But, you know, it was during COVID. I was finishing my book that came out in 2021 called Deliberately Divided, the inside the controversial study of twins and triplets adopted apart. We can talk about that a little bit later sure. if you like. But I was in the process of doing that. And, you know, people have time to kind of look through their closets. And I remember all these photographs. And really, nobody saw them except some of my students, some of my friends. And I realized this was a wonderful project to take on. And it it really was. I mean, it was so meaningful to me. And I'm just so glad that I did it. But it was also around now, around then, it was sort of 75, 76, 77 years, the anniversaries of these trials and things, the Nuremberg trials. And a lot of universities were sponsoring symposia on these topics. And so that was another incentive to get this out because I felt that they weren't giving the Mangala twins enough attention. Mm. And and again, you know, I think that that it's it's too much of a distance between us and them if we just hear about twins. I wanted to have names. I wanted to have stories. I wanted to show the old photographs that somehow survived. And that's what makes it real. I think whenever you hear from a real person, it makes a much greater impression. And that's been my experience with this book, which has had 
a lot of attention. I, I'm very grateful yeah. for that. So, so for people who may not be aware of the the specifics of these uh, the, the stories, what was going on at the camps? Who was Joseph Mangala, aka the Angel of Death? Yeah. So Joseph Mangala was a very well educated individual. He had a PhD and he had a medical degree from some of the finest universities in Germany, and he he requested a transfer from the front. So he went to Auschwitz and he was one of 23 doctors there. He was not the head doctor, but he's the one that we all know as the angel of death. And there he saw limitless opportunities for experiments on twins and dwarfs and anybody with genetic anomalies. And he had a collaboration with a Dr. von Verschoor back in Berlin at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. And so he would often visit von Verschoor or he would send specimens he collabed from the twins, I mean, body organs, things like that. It was a very perverse form of twin research. First of all, he didn't bother to organize them by identical or fraternal, which is a key step in any kind of twin research project. He was experimenting on people without any kind of informed consent, obviously. And these were people who were hardly representative of the human condition. They were starving. They were frightened. Uh, conditions were horrendous. And these were experiments that really had no purpose mm -hmm. in mind. I mean, why do you, for example, take a pair of male, female, five-year-old twins and sew them together back to back? Why do you do that? I mean, he wanted to discover if um, identical female twins would bear twins if impregnated with identical male twins. Well, if you want to discover the twinning process, then you study the parents, not the twins. Mm. There were just so many flaws in all of this. And the other thing is that <clears throat> there's been some debate among historians of science as to what the real purpose of the experiments was. And some people feel it was to understand the biological basis of twinning. But I believe it's another explanation, which is to show genetic influences on traits and to use those as evidence of superiority or inferiority of one population over another, which of course is a ridiculous value judgment. Yeah. But Mengel had actually done a PhD thesis on differences in jaw structures among different populations. So it was something that I think he was interested in pursuing. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you look at the, the Nazi paradigm of the time and you're trying to mix actual science with Nazi pseudoscience and ideals and beliefs, then it makes sense <laughs> that someone like Mengele would be interested in genetic traits and trying to create this superior race in his view and, and playing with things and mutilating. And, uh, you know, the, if there was a rhyme or reason to what he was doing, I imagine that you're right. It probably had something to do with uh, the differences in traits and trying to uh, manufacture something more ideal in the the Nazi point of view. Yeah, right. And and actually, in Auschwitz, Mengele did conduct research of a sort of standard anthropometric kind, where he took heights and weights and various facial measurements of twins. Uh, but there were also, as an example, that one twin told me when he was asked by a Nazi officer about siblings in his fa in his parents' family, and he was a what seven eight year old boy. He didn't know. He said he made up a number and they wrote it down. And also. So that gives you a sense of how flawed the research was. And then there were at least four pairs of pseudo-twins in there, people who were not really twins but were assigned as twins by the officers because they looked alike, or people who faked being twins because they knew the twinship would save your life at least for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the, the fact that you mentioned that they weren't separating fraternal twins versus identical twins. That seems like something that you would do right off the bat if you're you're trying to eliminate certain uh, crossovers or, or trying to 
look at the difference between nurture and nature that it doesn't really make sense to not make those separations if in some sick twisted way you're trying to do your version of science so so like that part didn't even make sense yeah and you know you know and the data have never really been found i i know that at the testimony there was a physician who was in the camps and she said that mangala was really so worried that his data would be stolen he was very protective of it and and then apparently von Verschur in berlin destroyed certain things so no one's ever recovered these data but i think that's just as well because if we were to use them it would send the mm. wrong message to future investigators that, yeah, you can do something that's not quite above board one year, but maybe 10 years down the road, somebody might pick it up and use it. So there's nothing, I'm sure, in that data trove, wherever it is or, does, or is, it doesn't exist anymore, that could have been more informative than what we can gather now with our legitimate yeah. and more sophisticated methods. I, I imagine if uh, I, I imagine there could be two forms of thought for the surviving twins if some data was recovered. And the first one would be, I don't want the, you know, it's obviously a, a symbol of such a horrific time and a horrific experiment that I don't want anything to do with that shit. Like, I, I don't I don't want to see the data at all. And I, but I could also imagine some of the surviving twins saying, you know, I went through this suffering. I at least want to see something that came from it, even if it's totally distorted, irrelevant, nonsensical data. I, I at least want to look at it and see this is what I suffered for. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I did send questionnaires to a number of the twins and I did get this mixed opinion where some people were in favor of it and other people said that it should be not be used. So some people felt that to use it would legitimize their horrific experiences. Other people wanted no part of it. So yeah, you get mixed views. But I think that the voices of the twins have to be heard in all of this. But I doubt that this stuff yeah. will ever be used. We don't even have yeah. it anyway. So when I was looking up some more things about Mangala, I actually came across a New York Times article that had a quote describing the experiments from Eva Core, And I know you photographed and spent time with Eva and Miriam Core in the book. No, it's Eva Core and Miriam Eva Core and Miriam Seiger. Those are their... Those are their yes, and, and yeah. they're uh, identical twins who uh, survived Auschwitz. And this is a quote from Eva Core in the New York Times. She says, Miriam and I were part of a group of children who were alive for one reason only to be used as human guinea pigs. Three times a week, we'd be placed naked in a room for six to eight hours to be measured and studied. They took blood from one arm and gave us injections in the other. After one such injection, I became very ill and was taken to the hospital. If I had died, Mangala would have given Miriam a lethal injection in order to do a double autopsy. When I didn't die, he carried on experimenting with us. And as a result, Miriam's kidneys stopped growing. They remained the size. They remained the size of a child's all her life. Um, so yeah, that, and that's just one small piece of the experiments that happened, just to give yeah. people an idea from someone who actually went through that. Yeah. yeah, and I'll tell you, one of the problems that the older survivors have is that you know, with the aging process, you do have conditions that will emerge, but many of them don't know if it's due to aging or due to some treatment they had at Auschwitz. So it really baffles them and baffles mm. their physicians. So that's another problem they go through right now. But I will say that that of the twins I've spoken to, they are resilient, they're strong, they've led productive lives, raised families, try to educate the community about their backgrounds. You know, I, I applaud them. 
I applaud them and I applaud their families. <clears throat> How much do you think being a twin was a factor in surviving the brutality of the death camp as opposed to people who weren't? Oh, it, it, was it, it was enormous, Zach, because twins were valued research subjects. And so the, the Nazi officers would walk up and down the train platform looking for twins and dwarfs or anybody who had a genetic anomaly. And they brought them in and the children were fed better and, and housed a little better. But ultimately, you know, they weren't any safer because they were part mm. of these experiments. But at least for a while, it saved their life. And that's why some people fake being a twin or other people told them to fake being a twin. That's sort of thing. From an emotional standpoint, just getting through an experience like that, I imagine there's there's uh, that bond can help you getting through a horrific experience as a twin. Of course it can. Yeah. Of course it can. And in fact, non-twin survivors will tell you that what sometimes helped them was to form a twin-like relationship with another person because you have to be mindful of yourself and mindful of someone else and know that somebody else cares. And if you feel that nobody cares in, in those circumstances, yeah. then I don't think you have much of a chance. So you actually spent four days in the group with the surviving twins visiting the Auschwitz Birkenau death camp. What what was it like walking alongside twins who were revisiting and remembering what happened to them 40 years ago? Well, it, it was the most amazing experience I ever had because, again, when you read about something, it makes one impression. When you actually are in a place with the people who went through it, it becomes much mm. more real. And you imagine yourself in those kinds of circumstances. And I said it another time, another place, I might have been there too. It was, I, I've been to a lot of academic conferences at this time, but this was something the likes of which I'd never, ever experienced in my in my life. And I'm so grateful that I did it. I heard about the event one, late, one night late when I was listening to the radio. And the minute I heard it, Zach, I knew I was going. Just like when I heard about the book launch in Australia, mm. I knew I was going. Yeah. So sometimes in life, these things happen and they make no sense, but you've got to do it. It was it was too compelling. I That's amazing. Also, oh, go ahead. also, when I went to Auschwitz, you know, there were some twins I knew who were looking for their twin brother or sister from whom they'd been separated for years. And I was at the time studying twins raised apart. So, I mean, that was another, you know, element that attracted me to that particular. Did event. you have any twins that were lost come together on that trip? No, there was one man I met who was looking for his twin sister only to discover that she had passed away. Uh. But I did see some twins who were not part of the same pair mm. meet each other and recognize each other. That was also yeah. pretty terrific. There's there's one photo in the book that particularly got to me and uh it's you can see Eva and Miriam and this is a photo taken back in 1945 but they can be seen wow. through the barbed wire walking out of the camp during the Auschwitz liberation and then there's a photo later in the book taken by you of Eva gripping the same barbed wire 40 years later so you see her and her twin as a child and then you see Ava grabbing onto the barbed wire that that was once electrified and it's it, it was just like I, I couldn't imagine the the visceralness of being there in this place where like it, you probably questioned, you know, it, it was like what what was the this whole thing? Like, what, was it a dream? Like, what the hell happened to me? I was 11 years old at the time. I can't imagine coming back to that same spot 40 years later with a lot of things remaining unchanged. It was pretty it was a pretty amazing for me who didn't live through it. It was just so enormous as to how this all could come to be, how people could do this to others. And for Eva Kaur and the other twins, I think it was that they had to go back and show that they were in control 
and also to bring their children to essentially the graveyards of their family members. I mean, that that's mainly a lot of what took place there, honoring. There's a lot of times we engaged in prayers and uh, memorial services, things like that. I mean, it was a it was a very emotional experience that has stayed with me for many, yeah. many years. And I've done a lot of talking about it. I'm actually going to present this book and some of the photographs September 23rd at in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is the Candles Museum. Candles is Children of Auschwitz, Nazis, Deadly Laboratory Experiment Survivors. And I've been invited there to give a talk on Saturday, September 23rd at 3 o'clock. I know that I don't know how many people listening here live in Terre Haute, Indiana or nearby, but it's a free event, and I would certainly encourage them or anyone they know to attend. I know we have some... I know, I know we have some Indiana State listeners, uh, so and I'll link this in the podcast description as well, so people can check it out if they live right. nearby. Right. There is there a quote from psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton in the book, and he says that Mengele's dedication to the Nazi biomedical vision kept him always on the border between science and ideologically corrupted pseudoscience a border very important to understand. Can you talk about that border and the understanding of, and your understanding of how Nazi pseudoscience was driving the twin experiments? Yeah, well, you see, as I said earlier, some of the measurements that Mengele made were standard scientific anthropological measurements that you'd make, height, weight, facial measurements. But then he crossed the border into this landscape where things were just so horrific that you can't imagine why he would do these and what they were supposed to show. The reason why Jews and others were put into these camps was that, you know, people felt they were an inferior group and taking away from German culture, but also they had to legitimize it by having the doctors declare the inferiority. So if the doctors were doing this, you know, people revere doctors a great deal, think that their words are important and must be taken seriously. And so if doctors are legitimizing this, well, it must be true. Maybe I don't agree with it, but if the doctor says it, it must be true. So I think that was a very important aspect of this whole operation. Yeah, it, it seems like something that has continued even until today where you have certain ideologies that are looking for ways into the mainstream and you need a legitimate quote unquote expert. You need expertise behind an ideology in order for something to crack into the mainstream and, and have some standing. So the the Nazis wanting to link up with doctors who are willing to say the type of things that would legitimize the experiments makes sense. Um, and, and you can even see that all the way through uh, like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. You could see that through other medical experimentation continuing uh, all the way up through right. today. Right. Right. And in fact, I mentioned my 2021 book, Deliberately Divided about the controversial New York City study where twins were purposely separated and they were followed behaviorally and physically for 12 years. And, you know, I know having interviewed many people who worked on that study, that some of the graduate students at the time were very uncomfortable with this, to go to one family one day and one family the other day. But a lot of them resolved it by saying, well, if my professor does this and says it's okay, then it's okay. Yeah. So sometimes I think, we, I understand that because, you know, we depend on our mentors for jobs and recommendations, things like that. But I think if something really cuts across the, the grain, you have to find a way to deal with it. And I, I know one woman that I interviewed in that book who said that 
she told no one about her role in this, just her husband. And she would not have her name in the book. She allowed me to write her story without mentioning her name, which I did. Uh, so I, I think that I think now there are more resources for students who may be upset with the professor or something that the professor is asking them to do. But certainly in those days, there was nothing like that. Yeah, it's a very powerful legitimizer when you have someone with credentials who's telling you this is for the greater good. It may not look good right now, but this is this is for something great. We're, we're, we're enduring suffering or we're putting these people through suffering in order for us to have scientific advancement, this is gonna, this is going to make the world such a better place. It, it's a very powerful thing when, uh, you know, you're younger or e- even a student or a, a professional, like someone who knows better, to have other people well, around even, you saying that. Or even somebody who's an adult but not very informed. A great example that has to do with the case in Canada, I believe it happened in the 60s, where identical twin boys were admitted to a hospital at about age eight, nine months because they were having urinary problems and they were supposed to be circumcised. And the doctor accidentally uh, ablated one little boy's penis Jesus. because he used an electrical uh, implement as opposed to a razor. And so they didn't touch the other twin, but they, they had to do something about this child. And so there was a doctor, John Money from Johns Hopkins University, who said, well, you know, the child can be made into a girl and you just give them the hormones and this and that. But it didn't work. And and the mother believed this in the beginning because the doctor told her this and they followed the instructions, but it obviously wasn't working because the child's brain had been masculinized. But that's a great example, too, of how when the doctors do a certain thing, people go along with it, even when they start to have their own self-doubts. That is incredible. I, I remember reading about this where uh, J- Dr. John Money, you said his name was? Yes, yeah, the, yes. the private parts of the boy became mutilated and they... I guess they turned it right. into a vagina somehow and just never. Well, they never, they never really did. They didn't have the surgical sophistication in those days, but they did a lot of surgeries on him. And, you know, when he got to be 14, they told him the truth and he was relieved. He he went right back to being a boy called David. And of course, the sad part about the story is that when the twins were in their thirties, the other twin committed suicide, and this one did eventually Jesus. too. So it's a very, very sad state of affairs, which could have been avoided. Could have been avoided. So, uh, the, what can I say? Th- these are very, very sad cases, but they serve to educate and inform subsequent generations. In the case with Dr. John Money, the parents were informed. I'm assuming, like they have to be in that case because you can't really keep that a secret. Well, of course, the, the parents had to know what the doctors yeah. planned, and they went along with it. I mean, they were desperate. And they were not highly educated people. Again, the doctor told them to turn him into a girl, and they thought that was the right way to do it. They emphasized lace and dolls and anything frilly and girly, but it wasn't working. Yeah. The child was always gravitating towards male typical toys and activities. Yeah. It just wasn't working. And and it was horrendous. And there was a the terrible thing about it was that there was a, a psychiatrist, a young psychiatrist in Canada, who was monitoring his progress when he was a child and knew that it wasn't working, but never had the strength to say anything because John Money was yeah. leading the, the whole operation. And finally, when my much older colleague, Dr. Milton Diamond, a wonderful guy who studies sexuality at the University of Hawaii, finally found the psychiatrist, the two of them wrote a paper together. And in the video I saw of this, the younger doctor admitted that he never had the strength to do mm. this and could never have done it without the help of Dr. Diamond. What what does the, the trans issue look like through the lens of studying twins? Are, are there 
many studies out there and research on one twin transitioning and another one choosing not to or some variation of that? I wouldn't say there are many studies out there, but there are some. And in fact, I've contributed uh, three case studies that I've come across. And it seems that these, some of these twins were discordant, meaning that one transitioned and one did not. And that seems, how can that be when it's such a fundamental part of their behavior. But I think it goes back to something in the womb, something to do with with cell development or exposure to prenatal hormones, something like that, that really changes them in in terms of their developmental trajectories. Mm. And it's amazing. In my book, Indivisible by Two, which came out in 2004 and five, there's a case study in there of a twin who just knew that that she was a boy. She just felt like a boy right away. Her sister never did. Her sister was a cheerleader and very feminine in her identity. And eventually that twin transitioned. But in a later case study that I published with Dr. Diamond, we found a set of identical male twins raised apart who both transitioned independently from being male to to female. Yes. And that's a very compelling case. So obviously it it was something genetic, something uh, biological, prenatal, or some combination of the two that ended up in those similar outcomes. Yeah. So the the male twins that were born together, raised apart, they both transitioned independently of one another. They they had no idea. And then the sisters, one transitioned and and the other one didn't. Right. And actually, That's so fascinating. And those, I don't know what the current, I, I don't know about the current statistics, but at least when I wrote those papers, the, it was more common to have male transitioning to female than female to male, because I think that females have an easier time living in a male world. You know, they can wear male clothes, whereas female males who wear female clothes are ostracized and obviously stick out. Females can hide this a lot more. Mm. So. Uh, we give females a lot more plasticity. We allow for tomboyishness, but we don't allow for sissyishness yeah. in boys. So, yeah, I think that's the reason why you see more male to female than female to male. But I will say that the female to male are more successful because female voices deepen with hormonal treatment, whereas male voices don't. Mm. So that's something to think about. So fe- female voices deepen. But I'm all for female voices people. deepen, and male vo- voices it's hard harder to raise them, like to get them to sound more female. That's right, and they often have to have uh, speech therapy. I know that there are a lot more resources for for children now for teens, and I think that that's a good thing. I think everybody should be allowed to be themselves. How much do you suspect the environment plays a role in someone deciding to become trans, or do you suspect it's mostly genetic? Well. You know, I think I think some cases are genetic. I think some have to do with some biological prenatal hormonal influences. And then some there's some been some literature lately about trendiness that, you know, it seems like there's a lot going on. So maybe I'll hop on the bandwagon for a short time. You know, there's, there's a lot of things going on. I, re- I really can't say which is more important or whatever. But I think we have to pay attention to these people. Yeah, that's all. No, it, it, it is fascinating. And, and I've listened to some experts on the trans issue on uh, other podcasts. And, and it, it, it seems like there's many factors at play as with anything. It's the, the environment, it's social pressure, genetics kind of coming together into this thing that we're trying to understand. And, and there's more and more information coming out on it. Yeah, but I think that to blame parents is completely not called for because if you think about identical twins, why would you treat one more like a boy and one more like a girl? You wouldn't. What you're doing is you're reacting to the behaviors that they display. So I don't I don't think it's a matter of parents mm. treating one child differently than another. The parents are just simply responding in kind, yeah. which is what we all do. Uh, so I want, I, um, go ahead. 
I was going to say that this might be a way to segue into my second book, but that's, but you're the host. Yeah. So I I 100% want to get into the gay father's twin sons. I I just had a couple questions on the actual hearings that you were part of when uh, you were witnessing the testimony of the twins. So, so there is a, you, you traveled to Jerusalem to attend the public hearings on Joseph Mengele's war crimes and heard the testimony of 30 survivors. And I, I, I wanted to know, cause I'm so curious about it. What, what was the most shocking testimony that you heard during that hearing? Well, the most shocking testimony actually came from a non-twin survivor. Most of the testimony was by twins, but this was a non-twin survivor named Ruth Elias and she was the last person to testify. And she had come to Auschwitz via Theresienstadt, which was another camp. And she was pregnant at the time. And she hid her pregnancy, but eventually she couldn't and gave birth to a baby daughter. And she was her, her breasts were bandaged, so she couldn't feed the baby. The baby was getting weaker. And she was told that if you didn't do something about this, Mengel's going to kill you both. So a nurse came a Jewish nurse, I believe it was Jewish nurse, came and gave her a syringe with morphine and Ruth had to murder her own child. And you can imagine how there was not a dry eye in the place when she told us that story. And of course, she suffered tremendously after that. But fortunately, she remarried, had several wonderful sons and became very active in Holocaust issues. The rest of her life, she read an amazing book that people should read about her experiences. When Mengele's death was announced, did you get a sense of any sort of relief from the survivors? Did they not care at that point? What, what was kind of the feeling? No, it was, def- it was definitely not relief. It was surprise, but it was also many people doubting the evidence. And the evidence was fairly sophisticated at the time, and I did believe it. The only thing that gave me a little bit of pause was that the doctors working on it knew who this was. So they knew it was a male. They knew that the approximate height, they knew the approximate weight, the approximate age. It would have been done better if it had been accomplished blindly, where you didn't know the identity of the person or the alleged mm. identity of the person. But other than that, all of the measurements pretty much fit. So so the point is that there was a mix of reactions. A lot of people felt it was a hoax, that Mangle had just substituted a body, that he was still in hiding somewhere. It was it was an important enough event that it required an inquest. And I'm glad that we had that. But the problem with the inquest was that it was held in Terre Haute, Indiana, in a huge arena in November. Mm. The problem was, and you can see in the photographs, that almost nobody attended except for the people involved. It was completely empty there. It should have been in the spring in a major city like New York, Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, where it was easy to travel and you had populations. This was a mistake at that particular time. And the other thing is that when the twins emerged from the testimonies, they were all very united in their quest to find Mangala this was, remember, February. This was four or five months before the death was known. So they're very united. Once Mengele's death was released and people began to believe it, it was sort of like the group unraveled in a sense. And I know that, that there was a group of twins that went back to Auschwitz a year, a year, two or three years later. I didn't go. And that was, I don't think it got a lot of attention and didn't get a lot of mm. people, my understanding. But but that was, there was a dissolution of the, the camaraderie and bond yeah. between the Holocaust twin survivors. So- Mengele still being alive was something that solidified the the, the a lot of the bonds of the twins, ha- having this person that did all these horrible things to them still out there. Yes, because they wanted yeah. to bring him to justice. That was their main quest, and now they were denied yeah. that opportunity. I, I was looking around. I saw some conspiracy theory uh that it wasn't actually him because Mangala suffered from a bone disease when he was younger, and the body oh. didn't have a bone disease, but that was okay. disproven. Okay. 
But yeah, that was the only thing that I saw. Yeah, I know about that. Mangla had osteomyelitis as a child. And in most cases, there's scarring left on the bones. There was no evidence of that in the bones they examined. But I spoke to a doctor who said that it usually leaves scarring. It may not. So, and you know, Mangla was very smart. He never had dental x-rays taken. Mm. Never did. And most Nazis did. But that way you couldn't, you know, connect him to any kind of evidence like that. Yeah, I mean, that that could be an entire three-hour podcast on its own is just discussing the the underground pathways that former Nazis took to South America and all the all the backdoor dealings with, involved with politicians and other people to to hide them down there so yeah that that whole that whole story is fascinating but he's I mean it's 2023 so uh, he's definitely dead we can we can say that for sure. He was born in 1911. Yeah. He was born in 1911. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that if it wasn't him, he certainly would. Yeah. Be and, right and if he was hypothetically alive, he'd be, uh, I imagine, suffering a, a great deal in a hundred plus year old body. So, well, yeah, would hope so. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so let's get into gay fathers, twin sons. You. OK, I'm yes. just going to flash a yes, picture. Please. I want people to see this cover. Yeah. This was taken by the sister of one of the gentlemen in the picture. And she was a professional photographer. And this, to me, captures the spirit and the mood and the love that binds this family. 100 percent. So I, I, from my understanding, you, you saw an L.A. Times article back in 2018 about Andrew Banks and Elad Devash, who are the gay couple in the book. And that ultimately led to your book, Gay Fathers, Twin Sons. Can you tell the story of Andrew and Alad and and the ordeal that their family went through? Sure. So Andrew was born in Santa Monica, California, but he had dual citizenship because his parents were originally from Canada. And when he was a young man, he wanted to get a master's degree in international relations. So he did that at Tel Aviv University. And while he was there, he met Alad Devash, who was four years younger, just entering for his bachelor's degree because he had to do army service first. And Alad was an overseas counselor. So the two met in the overseas student office and they had an attraction. They fell in love. They eventually got married in Canada because in 2010, you could not marry in the U.S. and you could not marry in Israel. You still can't marry in Israel, although they will recognize gay marriages if performed elsewhere. So they settled in Canada and that was 2010. And then in 2016 or so, they decided to have a family. And so they did this, of course, with the help of egg donors and surrogates. And it turned out that the top two embryos, one was fertile, one was from an egg from the surrogate and fertilized by Andrew's sperm, and the other was fertilized by Elad's sperm. So these fraternal twins were essentially genetic half-siblings because they shared one parent, but not the mm-hmm. other. And this replays a naturally occurring process called superfecundation, which leads to what are called heteropaternal twins, where if a woman releases two eggs at the same time, and has sexual relations with two different men close in time. The twins may have different mm. fathers. This is a well documented. What, what is that like? A, it's believed to be rare. I was just going to say it's like a three to four day period or something be, like that where it can happen. Yeah, it's not a three day. Right, right. It's a three day, four day period. Eggs can last, and sperm are active, and so you can have these twins. It's presumed to be rare. I think it's less rare than people think. I think some cases go unreported, undetected. But at any rate, the little boys, just beautiful, Aiden and Ethan. And then when the boys were four months old, in January of 2018, they decided, I'm sorry, January 2017, Mm -hmm. 2017, they decided to move to Los Angeles 
So they went to the U.S. consulate in Toronto with the birth certificates, the marriage licenses, all the documentation and the check that they would need, which was accepted. Their portfolio was considered complete. And they just waited around till eventually an officer came and started asking a whole series of rude questions, such as who was the father? Had these children come to be? What's their genetic relationship to you and to this one? And I mean, these were intimate details known by the couple, known to their attorney, known to their surrogate and to their physician. This was not information they would disclose to anyone else. The officer made them get a second DNA test because the lab they used was not accepted by the consulate, which cost them another thousand Canadian dollars. And ultimately, after a few months, the decision was made to give the boy with the American parent a U.S. citizenship and passport. And the other one was denied that and given a tourist <laughs> visa, Jesus. which threatened to tear this family apart. I mean, these were boys born in the same location, four minutes apart to treat one as a U.S. citizen, the other one not. Made absolutely And no how sense. old are they at the time? The twins? They were four, four months, months old. old. And by the time the decision was made, they were about seven months old. So what happened was they tried to get an attorney. Now, in Los Angeles, the attorneys were all busy because that was when Trump declared a ban on Muslim entry to the United States. There were immigration and citizenship lawyers were very, very involved. They had a meeting with one lawyer that proved to be unsatisfactory. The lawyer suggested that Andrew adopt the other boy. Well, that made no sense. Canadian government had documents saying that both parents are the legal parents of both mm. children. And you see, they could have taken an easy way out, maybe getting a green card, but that's, you don't know how long that's going to take. And the thing is, it, they would never have the same rights. These men who both faced a lot of discrimination growing up, Andrew in LA for being gay and, and Elad in Israel for being gay and for being Sephardic and living among many Ashkenazic Jews. So he, they, both men knew what it was like, and both men were fighters. And they said that we do not allow the government to treat our boys differently. Mm. You know, one could run for president, one couldn't. I mean, this was ridiculous. So they were finally put in touch with a wonderful group in New York City called Immigration Equality, which is a group of lawyers that works on behalf of gay, trans, and HIV-infected individuals who are dealing with citizenship and immigration issues. And they're very selective about who they take. They interviewed Elad and Andrew. And in a, within a week, they accepted the case. And why? The timing was perfect, Zach, because immigration equality had three other cases involving transnational gay couples, one female, two males, who had had children abroad and were dealing with similar issues. But while I, I argued this a bit with the attorney at immigration equality, I, I still know I'm mm. right. I felt the twin angle was going to capture the public attention. Because the idea that twins, one could be a citizen and one not, was just too preposterous for anyone to accept. And in fact, it was a twinship angle that attracted me. If if they had not been twins, I might not have been drawn to this case. But I was instantly drawn. And I felt that in the litigation that I was following, they weren't making a big enough case for the se possible separation of these twins. They were talking more about parenting mm. issues. And they were talking more and they were trying to deny any kind of difference between the non-twin families and the twin families, which, you know, I'm not saying the twin family was more important. I'm saying that there were different issues involved there. So the case was litigated. It was a lawsuit brought by the family against the U.S. State Department and Secretary of State, first Rex Tillerson, then Mike Pompeo. The Ninth Circuit Court uh, issued a statement, I believe, in 2019 or 2020, 2019, upholding Ethan's right to be a U.S. citizen. But then there's a 60-day window of opportunity where it can be challenged or appealed by the government. And they wait till day 59 oh to do that. Oh, my God. So it had to be relitigated, And there was a, 
it, it went through a very arduous process, but ultimately this Ninth Circuit Court upheld by the higher level court said, yes, both boys are U.S. citizens and Ethan was given a passport. And this led to changes in policy in some of the manuals that were being used. And this to me is so important. You know, there's a quote I give in the book by Fiona Hill, who was uh, a foreign affairs expert majoring in, in Russian mm. issues during the Obama administration and part of the Trump administration. But at any rate, she said something to the effect that sometimes ordinary people find themselves in extraordinary circumstances, and they're the ones who rewrite history. Mm. And that's exactly what happened to Alad and Andrew Devosh Banks. They were ordinary people involved in extraordinary circumstances that was suddenly thrust upon them, and they took the hard way out. But what they did was they left a legacy for their twin boys and for other families going through similar circumstances. Yeah, that that is just, it, it's amazing to me, not only their determination in getting through this, this entire ordeal, because raising twins apart, you know, living in different countries and being separated by a twin would be completely tragic if, if that were to to be the main result. But I'm, I'm also I'm also just yeah. blown away by the fact that uh, the government and customs is going down to the sperm level to decide whether or not to give citizenship to one twin over the other, saying that you were, you know, born from a sperm, a different sperm into an egg, and you were of another sperm into an egg. You're both twins, but we're going to, we're going to like get down to the, you know, gamete level distinction to try to split you apart. Like, is there any precedent for any uh, ruling yeah. like that? Yeah, There was a 1952 immigration law that a lot of this was based on. And it was kind of resurrected in the 90s and Trump kind of promoted it. And it talked about a biological connection between a child and a parent. Uh, but the problem here was that this law was misapplied and it treated the families, not just Andrew and Alad, but the other three couples, as if they were unmarried and at the time of the birth and they were legally married. So it was all misapplied, misinterpreted. And the interesting thing too, Zach, is that I have been a consultant for the Guinness Book of Records on their twin records for a number of years. I'm just rehired again. So Congrats. I'm having fun with it. But it's awesome. Yeah, thanks. In my second in my second stint with them, I discovered a case of twins, male females, who were born in different countries. And what happened was that one child was born early in Scotland, and then there were some difficulties, so the mother had to deliver the second one in England. And so they were in the Guinness Book, but then another pair suddenly emerged at, from Wales, and they said, no, no, we're the first pair. And it turned out that they were correct. One twin had been born in Wales, the other one in England, for the same reasons. Now, I brought both those cases up to you and in the book, because if you think about this, the UK structure I know is different politically, but these were twins born in different countries. And yet they were both given, you know, the same UK uh, passports. Yeah. They could run for, for office. I think there was a residency period of a month or two. I mean, something very minor like that, but there was no distinction made between them, right? Here you have twins born in the same place, four minutes apart, same country, and they still think of one being a non-U.S. Yeah. citizen. And, you know, the, the option, what, there were some other options. Maybe they could have moved back to Canada. Maybe they could have tried living in Israel. But that's not the point. The point is that they wanted to live in Los Angeles, and there was absolutely no reason why they couldn't. And when I met with Aaron Morris, who's the executive director and an attorney at Immigration Equality, we met on the spur of the moment at a wine bar in New York City. And I had to interview him on my iPhone 
in a crowded street, but I got what I needed. But at the end of the interview, I said to him, if you were conducting this interview, what would you ask me? And he said, what I would pose is the question, why does the government keep doing this? Why not just let people lead their lives? And he said, unfortunately, there's no answer to that question. And it's a great question. Why does the government keep doing this? Why block the rights of a perfectly lovely couple? You know, when you see Andrew in a love with their children, and I have many times, all you see are two parents who love their children, who want to educate them and nurture them and supervise them and take care of them. And that's all you see. You don't see anything else. And as Andrew and Alibo told me, we're really a very boring couple. Yeah. All we do is take the kids to Disneyland. We watch Netflix. We go to Walmart. And the only thing different about it is we happen to be two dads. And that's it. That's the only difference. There, there, And, you know, the other thing is, I've thought a lot about this, Zach. And, you know, I think that even if you're the kind of person who doesn't condone gay marriage, you don't have to have it done personally. You know, you can just allow people to live their lives. And I've never seen a movement by gay couples or the gay population to take away rights from heterosexual couples. Yeah. I've never seen that. So I just think we got to live and let live. You know, human beings are made so that we can thrive under so many different kinds of circumstances. Aside from nuclear families, the traditional form, we can live in orphanages. We can live with single parents. We can be raised by an older sibling. I mean, we can be raised in different cultures. There are so many ways we can thrive as long as we have the basic needs of food and nurturance and love, yeah. you know, and, and, and physical care. So I think it's something we all need to think about. Yeah, ab absolutely. I'm, I'm trying, like, we're all familiar with politicians getting their pocket stuff by corporations and, and making certain legal decisions to appease corporations. But uh, I'm trying to think of what would be the political benefit of a politician upholding a law like this or a, a, a lawmaker, someone involved with uh, citizenship, reading the law in this way that is flawed. What, what benefit do they get out of this besides discrimination, which isn't a benefit. Why would you want to be known, especially in 2023, as someone who discriminates against homosexuals? Well, I, I think that they basically are listening to their particular voters on this. Otherwise, you know, they would probably act otherwise. You know, while this was all going on, there was a statement signed by a good number of senators, mostly Democratic, I think maybe virtually all Democratic, really arguing in favor of changing these laws, changing these policies. And a lot of this was spurred by the DeVosh Banks case. This case, the subtitle, which you didn't read, is the citizenship case that captured the yes. world. And this thing went viral everywhere. People in very remote locations knew about it. It got a lot of attention. And a lot of these policies were changed because of this case. And I spoke to one uh, one person who I identify in the book is SDO, which stands for State Department official, because he was pretty high up and didn't want his name revealed. But he was terrific and gave me a lot of information. And he said that he was having resistance from some of the older litigants in the Justice Department. The younger ones were a little bit more open to things. And he, he and some other attorneys I interviewed also raised the question of what about down the line when people want to have children, but don't want to get married? And what are we going to do in this country? Yeah. And so the idea there is to perhaps look at intent. You know, if you're unmarried, do you intend to have these children? Do you intend to take care of them and pass on all benefits at your disposal? And that's really an important question to think about. You know, why are we limiting parents just to the traditional married couple? What's interesting is that suppose you had a couple, and this actually is a scenario in the book, a heterosexual couple where, say, the woman 
uh, was a U.S. citizen but couldn't get pregnant. And so she had an egg donor was used and fertilized by her husband's sperm. And the husband was also not a U.S. national. And she brought the baby back without even carrying it, you know, without gestationally. The State Department wouldn't question that for one minute. From a heterosexual couple. It was because it was a gay couple. Yes, the cake couple was targeted. What do you think would have happened if the twins were born in the U.S.? Do you think it would have been a non-issue, or do you think they would have still given them a hard time about the, the biologics? No, no. I, had they been born in the U.S., it would have been all right. They both would have been U.S. nationals, I'm pretty sure. In fact, what was interesting is that their Canadian donor, and rather the Canadian surrogate, had you know, it was a risky pregnancy because twin births are, and hers was particularly risky. But there was one point where there was no room in the hospital for her, so they thought that she would have fly to Den- uh, Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. But she didn't want to do that, and she didn't have a passport. Now, if she'd had the passport and went there, perhaps this whole thing wouldn't have happened. Yeah. But in a way, you know, I know the family suffered tremendously, but in a way it's good that it happened because it forced us to take a long, hard look at these issues and it forced us to really celebrate what Andrew and Allah did in such an unselfish manner. And in fact, in immigration equality, you have to go public because they also want to educate the public. And they knew that even though it would be difficult for them, and it was, they had to talk publicly, they had to go on television, they had to really um, reveal what the relationship was of each parent to each child biologically. But I can tell you that there is no distinction. Both parents love both children. And in fact, in the course of writing this book, I coined a new term that I hope enters the psychological literature. And actually two new terms. One is called cross-parenting and the other is called assortative cross-parenting. So cross-parenting would involve a feeling of a parent toward a child that happens to maybe look like him or act like him, a certain affinity for that Mm. child. And that's been documented in the literature, although there's no term given to it. But I was more intrigued by assortative cross-parenting. And Elad explained this to me. And I've checked it out with some other couples like them. And most of them endorse this. It's the idea that you have a certain affinity with the child fathered by your partner, because in that child, you see the traits that attracted you to the father in the first place. Mm. You see what can I mean? you say can you say the, yeah. the definition so, of just cross parenting one more time? Yeah, cross cross parenting is. Oh wait, can I just double check something for a second? Yeah, I, I just yeah. want to make sure I have the right. Hundred hundred percent. I can look it up as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I I actually gave you the wrong term. It's it's assortative parenting versus assortative cross parenting. Mm. Okay, not cross parenting. Assortative parenting and assortative cross parent. Okay, let me just go through this again. Assortative parenting is when a parent feels a certain affinity or attraction to a child that he or she sees embodying his own characteristics, physical and or mm. behavioral. Okay, and both Elad and Andrew saw that in the child that they their sperm mm. led gave rise to. But the the term assortative cross-parenting refers to the feeling of a parent toward the child they did not father because they see the characteristics of their partner in that child. And that's what attracted them to their partner. So they see it in the child. And both Andrew and Alad talked about this, how they love, Andrew loves Aiden because he fathered Mm. him and same with Elad and Ethan. But they also have a certain affinity for the other one's child because that child is like their spouse. Yeah, so so the the father whose sperm fathered twin A, let's say, would feel uh, assortative parenting. They would have feelings for that twin, the one that came from their sperm, and then cross parenting would be the affinity for the other one. And so you have both, and so that's the, correct. And so you can have both of those in a. I guess is that possible outside of a 
a homosexual, uh, like adoptive rela- relationship? Because you have two different sperms fertilizing. Well, probably, oh, you said it. it you, probably not adopted. Yeah. Probably not adopted because the children are not genetically connected to either parent. But it certainly could happen in an ordinary nuclear family with a heterosexual couple. And in fact, um, I mean, in fact, let's say a wife, there's a little boy, and the wife sees the little boy embodying some of her characteristics. But she also sees in him the characteristics in her husband that drew her to him in the first place. But, you know, there's a wonderful quote I have in there from the book Gone with the Wind. Mm. And Rhett Butler is commenting on Bonnie, the little girl that he had with Scarlett O'Hara. And he said that what he loved so much about Bonnie was that she was like Scarlett in so many ways that he wanted to spoil her just like he wanted to spoil Scarlett, but yeah. she would accept it. So it, it it's a real phenomenon, but I think it's never had a name till now. So again, assortative parenting and assortative cross-parenting. Yeah, and I, I imagine there could also be an opposite of that where a parent sees some of the partner that they dislike and then they grow to not like their own child, which would be very unfortunate because it reminds them of a parent maybe they got divorced from or just separated at some point. The positive yeah. one is, is much better. You know, I, it, it feels much better to think about. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's conceivable, Zach, but I've, so far I've not yeah. encountered it. <laughs> um, I'm just going to run to the bathroom real quick, but I'll be right back. I'll just, I'll just be a couple minutes. Yeah, so, so some, something uh, I, I wanted to get into the just like the general twin studies, uh, just like some some things that were popping into my head as I was going through some of your research and your books. And so I I didn't understand the logic behind twin studies before I started reading your work. And so I wanted to ask you if you could explain the methodology of how twins are used in scientific studies of, of like fraternal versus identical and, and what specifically that tells you about genes and, and nature versus nurture, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, first of all, we don't talk about nature versus nurture. We talk about nature and nurture because both are important. Now, the twin study method, the classic method, is very simple and very elegant. You simply compare the similarity of identical twins to fraternal twins with reference to a particular trait, height, weight, IQ, uh, personality traits, things like that. And if the identical twins are more alike, which they invariably are, this tells us the genes do make some contribution in fashioning the development of that particular trait. That's the classic method. There are some variations on that. For example, the perverted kind that Mengele used was where you give a treatment to one twin, not the other. And, you know, the the, the classic way of doing it, or the, the normal way of doing it, it, there's two kinds. It's called co-twin control. And the experimental kind is when you might give a training or treatment program to one twin, not the other or give a drug to one twin and a placebo to the other. And then you monitor this for a while and see if it affects the outcomes differently. Mm. There's a natural co-twin control where with identical twins, say if one has schizophrenia or one is gay or one made more money than the other, you know, you try to see uh, what are the factors that underlie these differences. So there's many, many ways of studying twins. And one I will mention, another one is called the twin family study, where identical twins are married to ordinary unrelated people, and they have children. And because the children have a genetically identical parent, they're not just legal cousins, but they're also genetic half-siblings because they share one parent in common. And I've been studying these kinds of families, comparing them to the ordinary fraternal twin families where nothing changes to see if there's greater parental investment and caring and all of that in the identical families. Because the aunts and uncles are essentially the genetic moms and dads 
of their nieces mm. and nephews. And so I am finding greater investment and caring in those particular families. And I also have a study on the loss of a twin. You know, how is the loss of a twin different than the loss of a non-twin? And is there a difference for identicals versus paternals? I have probably 800 cases now, and I'm always willing to accept more if people want to fill out the survey. Yeah. Uh, going off of what you said about the parenting, so I, I watched a bit of the debate that you appeared on in the open debate where the motion was parenting is overrated. And you argued for the motion that, yes, parenting is overrated. To you, what makes parenting and all the, the time and the resources dedicated to the act of parenting overrated in terms of your argument for that debate? Okay. Well, first of all, let me say that that debate, which took place in October of 2019, was sponsored by by IQ Squared. Yes, Intelligence Squared. Yeah. John Van in New York City at Hunter College. Yeah. So I actually did not like the title of this Parenting is Overrated. I think it should have been Parenting is Misunderstood. And that's what I would have been more comfortable supporting because I don't think parenting is overrated. But I think that aspects of parenting that people put a lot of investment in are overrated. You know, I think the best thing that parents can do is to be very sensitive and receptive of the children's individual differences, identify strengths, identify weaknesses, and try to nurture the strengths and minimize the the weaknesses. That is what parents need to do. Parents do not need to run out and buy baby videos, the Mozart effect, which has been disbanded years ago. They don't need to start enrolling their fetus in yeah. graduate school. I mean, we're getting a little bit crazy. And and you know, when you look at identical twins reared apart, as long as they're raised in good supportive homes with love and nurturance, their lives proceed in largely in parallel. So I think that What's good about this is that parents should relax a little bit. Children in their own way will let you know what is best for them. Yeah. And something fascinating about that debate is you talk about parents reacting to their kids and that doesn't get taken into account enough where you, as a parent, you're not just coming up with your own parenting style in an echo in a in a vacuum and then implementing it onto your kids. You are reacting to your kids in real time and forming these policies of parenting, whether you realize it's a reaction or not. So so it makes sense that the, you know, the stereotypical parenting, like what you're talking about, the, you know, Einstein playing Mozart, uh, you know, looking at now I'm picturing uh, kids coming out of the womb with uh, tassels on their graduation caps. Um, it, it makes sense that parenting would be it's it's such a like it seems like such a high risk thing because you can fuck up a kid and you do have such a big, big impact on them with the way that you raise them but the, there's also that other side of it that your kid is going going to be a certain I, I, I think way that parents i think that parents may have less of an impact than they think certainly if you talk about extreme environments you know parents who are like enormously wealthy with amazing advantages in the public arena or parents that are enormously impoverished and abusive yeah that's going to overwhelm genetic factors. But in the normal range of human existence, I think that parents may have less of an impact than they think they do. And if you talk to parents who have fraternal twins or two children separated fairly close in time, you will see that parents of one child are environmentalists and parents of two are geneticists because they immediately see that these children are just so different of what may work for one kid is no. not going to work for the other. And, you know, we tend to think of the home environment as being the same for all kids, but it isn't. Objectively, yes, it is. Everything is there for one kid is there for the other. But one child may gravitate toward books, one child toward computers, one child 
towards sports equipment. So children carve out their own little niches available from what surrounds mm. them. And that's what identical twins read apart do also is what we believe, that they have things that they can get access to, but they don't just pick indiscriminately. You know, just like your house. I mean, your house is decorated a certain way. Things just didn't come on the walls. You chose yeah. to pick them there and they're a reflection of who you are. Yeah. Is it is it twins raised apart where you, you said that identical twins raised apart are more alike than fraternal twins raised together? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a very important comparison that does not get enough attention because intuitively you think people raised together should be similar and they're not. And also identical twins raised apart are as alike as identical twins raised together in personality. And so that's kind of a counterintuitive finding. But what that means is that the similarities among people living together who are related means that the similarities are due to their shared genes and not due to their shared environment. And a good way to separate that is to look at what I call virtual twins, who are children who are same age unrelated, who happen to come into the family at the same time. Mm. So they're kind of twin-like in a way. They're, they're not just ordinary adoptive siblings. They're children who are the same age. So they go through life in a kind of twin-like situation. Yeah. And they're very different. Yeah. One, one of the things that I'm learning now is I, I'm, I'm not a twin, but th this would still apply to just a, any kid in general or, or someone with siblings is how different I am from my parents. And I'm 29 years old, so I've been out of the house for a while. But I, I used to think I was much more similar to my parents when I was living under the same roof because I'm following all these rules and I have all these pressures and I see them more often. So I'm getting more physical cues and social cues. But then once I went to college and then once I moved out of the house, I had this uh, it, it was a shift in my mentality because I always used to think, you know, like, is it bad if I'm different, much different than my parents? Like, does, does that mean that I'm somehow erring down the wrong path because I have much different preferences or, you know, I try things that my parents weren't willing to try or have different opinions on. And then I, I came more to balance with the fact that once I, once I, uh, I was about to say, once I escaped my parents' house, <laughs> once I, once I moved out of my parents' house, I became more at ease with like, no, this is just, this is just how I am. This is how my brothers are. We, I have these differences within me and they're, they're, parenting style was never really going to urge me one way or the other once I became my own person. Well, you've said some very important things, actually, without realizing it, probably. Probably. You know, <laughs> some of the twin studies that were done with children, some of the twin studies done with children, looking at religiosity, that is not their religious affiliation, but how much they were involved in religious activities, or uh, twins involved in sports participation done with young kids, they found no genetic effect there. And why? Because both identical and fraternal twins were living under their parents' thumbs, their guidance. They had to play tennis if they, even if they hated it, or they had to practice the piano even if they hated it. But when you leave the house, due to gen new genetic factors that click in, but also because you're freer to exert your own genetic potential and pick and choose what you want, you become more you. Mm. And that often means being different than your parents. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It might mean that. But that's not good or bad either way, Zach. You know, how do you put a value judgment on that? It's just different. You know, there's no better way to be. It's everyone's different. And it's a good thing, too, because our species needs diversity in order to survive. One of the things that you do such a great job at in your books is that you refrain from the value judgments and you present the facts and you say, this is the information. I'll share my opinion a little bit, but generally this is come to your own conclusions. Do you find yourself fighting the urge 
to judge things by their value with twin studies? Or are you so in the flow now where you just look at it as the data and this is what it is? It's not a good or a bad thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the flow. You know, I don't believe in value judgments based on genetic factors because all that it means is that maybe it's optimal for a certain period of time, but that can switch. You know, um, when I wrote, a great example of that is when I wrote Deliberately Divided about the controversial New York City twin study. You know, I did not, I, I was against that study from the start, the minute I heard about it. But I wanted to really let people come to their own conclusions. And so I really kept myself out of it until the very end. And then I really let loose. Yeah. But I felt that readers needed an opportunity to come to their own conclusion. And I think that's very, very important to do. I really do. With my students too, sometimes I will talk about a certain paper or a certain concept and I'll say, look, this is, this is what it is. This is how I feel, but you've got to come to your own conclusion. That's yeah. just how we are. And I think that's that's the fairest way to present things to people. Do you do you get any pushback with the results that draw a through line between behavior and genetics? Because it it there has been a dark past with uh things in the genetic field like uh Nazi engineering or, or other uh, human experimentation. So I was wondering if, if when you do find behavior that is linked to genetics or when that sort of conversation comes up that you get instant pushback without people even reading the experiment or they reading what you did, they just are automatically against it. Does that happen a lot? You know, uh, no, it, it happened maybe very occasionally. I don't, I know some of my colleagues have had a worse time of that than I have, but I think I try to present things in a very fair and clear way and emphasize that genetics are not destiny, that genes operate in probabilistic ways, not deterministic ways, and that by altering environments, we can alter gene expression, uh, although that is easier for some traits than for others. Uh, but I think that people have to understand, and I think they do understand, that we can all improve, uh, but we all can't be the same in every single way. Uh, you know, if you're six feet tall, you're probably never going to be a gymnast, but there's lots of other athletic activities that you could excel in that a very short person mm. could not. So, you know, we well, it's a matter of finding our what we like, what we dislike, where we fit in, things like that. But no, I've not had too much pushback. The only really resistance I had was when I was writing Deliberately Divided because Peter Neubauer, the doctor at the center of this, or one of the doctors at the center of this horrific study, had a lot of supporters. I mean, honestly, Zach, People who had, didn't even know much about his work, but again, it was this blind support because he was a kind of guru to many of them. And when I asked some of them how they felt about the movie Three Identical Strangers, which was about those triplets who were separated and part of that study, some of them gave me these opinions and said, oh, but you know what? I never really saw the movie. Yeah. And I thought, how can you render an opinion if you haven't seen the movie? So that happens. It's this blind loyalty. That, That's what happens. It sometimes. happens all the time. And I've gotten better at stopping myself when I start to do that. But even I've been guilty of reading a headline or just being a third party to a conversation where someone's talking about something else that I haven't even seen. And then the opinion gets filed in the back of my head and I find myself I'll, I'll talk about something. and I have to stop myself because I'm like, wait, I didn't fucking see that I didn't, I didn't even listen to it let me let me watch something first I, yeah. a good example of that is the barbie movie um so my girlfriend saw it when it first came out about a month and a half ago and i promised myself that i wasn't gonna listen or watch any interviews or any podcasts i wanted to go into the barbie movie with an open mind and that i, I believe made me much more open to enjoying the film 
where in the past I had consumed podcasts and interviews that go into details of the film and I go into the film having an opinion before I've even seen it. So just as a, a tangent, a tangent aside, uh, it, it's, yeah. it's very, it's a, it's, it's hard to fight that urge because I feel like we, we feel the need to feed the opinion machine in our own heads and it makes us feel good, but it's good to kind of take a break from that. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a good approach. And sometimes I find that there are movies I want to see and they're kind of panned, but the topic is something I'm really interested in. So I just set aside all the negative reactions I've heard about or read about, and I go in with an open mind, and sometimes I find I really enjoy it. So I think it's it's good. Not everybody sets aside those opinions, but I think if you can, then I think Oh, yeah. Na- now, if I go on Rotten Tomatoes and I see that a, a movie has a terrible critic score but a great audience score, I enjoy seeking out those movies i go in my head oh there's something something here that the audience loves but critics hate so that makes me want to watch it even more i thought you put your opinions aside for those 30 (laughs) seconds yes no so i i just i just mean more of that's true that is that is part of the the percent even just seeing the percentage of an audience score could sway my opinion even if i don't read the actual reviews so i i should really go into it with uh within with a more open mind Sure. Uh, you, you mentioned deliberately divided, and I, and I wanted to get into that a little bit. And okay, Josh, uh, can I just hold for a second, Josh? I, I need to yes. The rest go of ahead, so perfect. Yes, go ahead. Take your time. Thanks. Uh, I'll I'll keep that bathroom break in. No, I'm, I'm I'm just I'm just kidding. Yeah, and and also that and also my my you better because my my next phrase is now I have no brain bladder. Perfect. That yeah, there it is. That's the third phrase yeah. coined by you that will be on this podcast. Yeah, there you go. So de- deliberate. Good. That yeah. Means- so Deliberately Divided is another book that you wrote that explores the New York City Adoption Agency, Louise Wise, that separated twins and triplets in the 1960s, who in a disturbing catch tracked the children's development while never telling any of the parents that they were indeed raising a twin or I, I believe quote unquote singleton is how they were described in the book a single twin i also know that the study was shrouded in secrecy so so how did you become aware that this study even existed okay well i learned about the study in the 1980s when i first went to the university of minnesota as a new postdoctoral fellow and 60 Minutes was poised to do an expose on that particular study. And for some reason, it never came off. But that's where I learned about it. And Larry Wright, the journalist who works for New Yorker magazine, wrote a book about twins. And in that, he gave some attention to this particular story. He had done some interviews with some of the main investigators, which he very kindly let me listen to as I was writing the book. But I began to follow it from time to time. Little bits of it would come out here and there. And then, of course, when the triplets met in 1980, that sparked a whole bunch of attention on that. But that, that of course, was, yeah. So I must have learned about it first from that. Then um, Professor Bouchard, who was my mentor at the University of Minnesota, was at a conference in Michigan. And he met one of the assistants who was on that project and put us together. So he and I began to talk and went to the Louise Wise archives at Columbia University and looked at some things there that were not under seal. So I began to, you know, just follow it from time to time. Then Three Identical Strangers came out. But prior to that, there was another movie called The Twinning Reaction, a wonderful movie directed by Laurie Shinseki. And I'm, I've been in that movie. And, um, of course, it got a little bit less attention than Three Identical Strangers. But at any rate, Laurie said to me, 
you know, I have all this stuff I can give to you. You had to write a book. And I was a little bit hesitant at first because I knew it would be controversial. I knew there'd be people who wouldn't want to talk to me. But ultimately, I decided to go with it because I felt it was an important piece of twin research history that needed to be told. And I was determined to tell it the right way. This history will never be told again in the detail that I was able to uncover. I'm very proud of that book. It was harder to write than the others because at first when people wouldn't talk to me or wouldn't talk to me on their name with their name, I would take it personally till I realized that's information. The fact that they don't want to talk, I can put that in the book that I contacted this one and they didn't want to talk or they changed the story later on. So I and I, and also I tracked down every single twin and triplet who'd been studied. Mm. Every How one. many were there in total? It's the only place. Uh, there were the one set of triplets. There were initially five sets of identical twins, but then one twin pair was dropped because they had different adoption dates, gotcha. which is bad science. So that was uh, 10 children plus three is 13. And then there were four sets of fraternal twins who were separated but not studied. And so that's another bunch of kids. That's another eight. So that makes it into uh, 21. One of those four sets, I've never determined if they were identical or fraternal. And two of those sets were actually separated before the study launched in 1960. Mm. So you said that the twins started to meet in the 1980s. Well, that was that was the first the, pair that I believe met in 1980s, the triplets who met by chance. How did that see, happen? How did they meet? Well, it's an amazing story. And it's beautifully captured in a reenactment of Three Identical Strangers. So the triplets were Bobby, David, and Eddie. And they were all living in different parts of New York, one in Long Island, one in Queens, I think, and one in, in, uh, one in Hyde Park and one in uh, Scarsdale. So one of the triplets went up to this small school in upstate New York, and he was there one semester and left. And the other triplet happened to enter that same college, and people would recognize him and call him the wrong name. They were calling Eddie Bob. They were calling Bobby Eddie because Eddie was the first one who went. Then they're calling him Bobby. And somebody who knew Eddie quite well arranged for them to meet that night. And of course, they were so identical and they had the same birthday and they were involved with the same adoption agency. So the New York Times, I remember this. I was in New York visiting at the time. My mother woke me up. Identical twins meet after 19 wow. years. Give three, three, four more days. The other twin who lived in Queens, going to Queens College, was shown the newspaper and realized he was part of it as well. So that's how they met. An amazing story. But that's how twins meet. You know, there's another pair in there that met because their aunt, the aunt of one of them, went to a, a pancake house. And she recognized a waitress as looking like her niece. And they met through that. So the twins meet in all sorts of odd ways. But the terrible thing is that they met by chance and not facilitated through mm. the adoption agency. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I'm sure that type of meeting interaction happens a lot with identical twins that were separated. If one of them's at a grocery store and someone's yelling, Katrina, Katrina, and they're like, I'm Anne, like who's Katrina? And, and then the, the other person's like adamant. Oh. They're like, no, you're you're Katrina, like you, you look exactly like, and then the the connection is made if if the third party ends up pursuing it and bridging it, bridging the twins together. Actually, there have been, I, I don't know if it happens a lot. We don't know how many identical twins are out there who will never meet. Um, unfortunately, there are probably fraternal twins separated by Louise Wise who will never meet mm. if they didn't look alike. And the four who did meet um, met because of searches and things of that sort. And I think in one case, a twin was told by Louise Wise years later. But at any rate, uh, I do know about twins who meet through mistaken identity. In my book, Born Together, Reared Apart, which came out in 2012, which is all about the Minnesota study mm. twins raised apart, I chronicle a couple of cases like that. And- a more recent case involved these two South Korean twins who I write about in various places. 
uh, there's actually a book and a movie that came out about them called Twinsters. Mm. And what happened there was that one of the twins was an aspiring actress who lived in, in L.A., born, but raised in New Jersey, and put a video of herself on the Internet. And it was seen by the friend of the other one who was raised in France and was working in England. And he got them together and wow. they ended up being twins. So. The internet has really facilitated a lot of these. Another case where mistaken identity happened, and I report this in my book, Accidental Strangers, it came, I'm sorry, Accidental Brothers. Mm. I've got to remember what I've written. Accidental Brothers, that came out in 2018. And this is a double switch, which is extraordinary, Zach. What are the chances? Twins were born in Columbia, South America. A pair of identical twins born in Bogota, the lively capital city. Another pair born in a very ultra rural area, 100 miles to mm. the north. So when the the couple up in the north, uh, what happened was one guy in the north was very sick at birth and his grandmother brought him down to the hospital where the other twins had been born. And a week later, somebody accidentally brought the wrong baby back. So they were raised apart and it was like two copies of the same unrelated pair. Wow. But they each grew up thinking they were fraternal twins. And then when they, when they were 25, the two up in the north moved down to Bogota and then they were confused by somebody and that's how they all got together. That is insane. So... It was uh, all four were male, you said? They were all male, yeah. yes. And and they were identical. And one of the twins said, you know, when, when he found out the name of the other one, he said he, he looked on the internet and he said, there I am in an outfit that, you know, I know I don't own, but that's yeah. me. And next to him is a guy who looks just like my own twin brother because they thought they were fraternal yeah. twins. There's my twin brother in an outfit and a place where we don't know anything about that. I mean, it's got to be amazing. Yeah, two sets of identical twins swapped and then growing up thinking that they're fraternal twins because they obviously that's swapping me. Correct. That is incredible. That's unbelievable. Yeah, they actually were virtual twins. They actually were virtual twins, only they didn't know wow. it. Same age and related. Wow. I, I imagine with the, you mentioned the technology. I imagine with the, the, facial recognition software and now when facebook asks you to tag someone and they'll say this person this is your friend jesse and it automatically shows you a suggestive tag i bet there's also been some connections that have happened like that where an identical twin that maybe doesn't know they have an identical twin is being asked by facebook to tag someone else in one of the photos and they click on the profile and it's like someone who looks exactly like them, but obviously is not them. I'd be curious to see if that's led to anything. Well, uh, I don't know what's going on with Facebook, but I know that through 23andMe, some twins have been reunited that way because certain immediate relatives come up. And one twin was told about a daughter she didn't think she had. Wow. <laughs> it turned out it was her twin sister's daughter, but they were equally related. Ama to amazing. person. So, yeah. Um, I also should mention another kind of twin-like study that I do where I study unrelated lookalikes. And this gets back to our personality uh, conversation from a little bit before. Uh, some people feel that if you look like somebody, a doppelganger, you should be alike in every way. And I think that's ridiculous because personality is in the brain, not in the face. So I actually assembled the group of these through the help of a photographer in Canada, Francois Brunel. And I gave these lookalikes personality questionnaires and they're nowhere like the clo close to zero correlations. And they, they're the parallel of identical twins raised apart because they were raised apart, but they look alike. Mm. And the twins are very similar and these people are very different. So um, yeah, and, and differently, in, um, but getting back now to, to deliberately divided, I I really didn't test the twins, and there's a lot of data on them, but I just got their stories. There's a lot of data on them. 
that's been sequestered in the Yale University Library, which is what was stipulated by the people who got access to the data. I think it's wrong to use those data. I'd be curious to see exactly what's there. I've gotten I've gotten some of it. Some of the twins are able to get it through requests, but it's a very arduous process, and some of them have let me see mm. some of it. Uh, but again, you know, to use that would send the wrong message to future investigators. And the data were collected in a very wrong manner because the same investigator would go to both twins. And so there'd be a bias operating. Yeah, Ill, ill-gotten gains. For the for the psychiatrists who were leading that study, Viola Bernard and Peter Neubauer, to the to the best of your knowledge, what were their arguments for separating the twins? What, what were they trying to accomplish? Well, it was... What, what, uh, Viola Bernard had this misguided notion the twins are better off being apart because they wouldn't have identity and competition issues. And so that's why she separated them. And then Peter Neubauer, they both said, well, as long as they're being separated, let's study them. But that's the wisdom that they were separated and then studied. I'm not so sure, Zach. Having gone through this a lot and thought about it, I think the other scenario was equally plausible, maybe more so, that Neubauer talked for a while about separating twins, even before this started. And so it could be that she was simply legitimizing a reason to get him a population. Mm, yeah. See? So it, it's very, very possible. The two were very, very close. The other thing that Viola Bernard said she could, was concerned about was parenting challenges, you know, raising two children at the same time. But, you know, what's interesting is if she really believed all this, why did she limit this wisdom to the children who were adoptees? Why about all twins? I mean, if twins are better off being apart, well, it's hard for parents, but Parents make sacrifices for their children all the time. Why not go to child development associations, psychological associations, and talk to them about this? And why, when she had grandnieces who are identical twins, why didn't she separate them? So the fact that she li- she limited this so-called theory to the adoptees of Louise Wise, I think, is pretty horrific. Yeah, and, and, if, and, pretty and if you thought you were doing something good, you wouldn't seal records until 2065. There, there, there's no uh, good well, reason exactly. to do that. Exactly. That's crazy. So they're they're just buried exactly. in the Yale archive, you know, for the next forty plus yes. years. And some of her, yeah, some of her records are in, at Columbia University, and some of them are open, and some of them are not. And well, the ones that were not were opened as of twenty twenty one, but I hear that there's still some difficulty in getting access to them. I hope to look take a look at some of that when I'm in New York next time. But I was able to go and look at the stuff that was unsealed. And I'm amazed at what I found. I mean, I document a lot of that stuff in the book, all these amazingly revealing letters and memos and meetings. I mean, it's just extraordinary what those people were thinking. How many people inside of the adoption agency and inside of this research group knew this was going on? How, how many people were okay with this? I, I think virtually everybody knew because adoption workers had to know, social workers had to know, research staff had to know. I can't tell you the yeah. actual number, and I, but I do know that not everybody agreed. But again, it was the kind of thing, well, I'm just doing my job. And if so-and-so says that Dr. Bernard, the guru, yeah. must be okay. So people went along Go, with it. Yeah, it goes back to the credentials thing. You know, if someone in charge is telling you that this is for the greater good, it 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 makes it harder to go against it and to speak up and say, we should stop this because it's messed up. The, the crazy thing to me is uh, Peter Neubauer seems like he was a well-respected guy before this because he did work with child's language and did work with families. And he seems like if, if anyone was to stop this with the, the twins being separated, he would have been the guy. But obviously, he never spoke up or the study wouldn't have continued. Yeah, he was in a position to really stop this. But I think he's the one who instigated it. That's that's my yeah. thinking now. And yeah, he was a very well-respected 
doctor. Dr. Bernard was as well in the New York City uh, professional and cultural life. He had a lot of admirers. And I just think that, well, two of the twins went back and actually questioned him. And I talk about this. They said, did you endorse your theory? And he wouldn't say yes or not or no. I mean, he just kind of hedged. So it seems to me that even if he didn't agree, he wanted those data and he was willing to do whatever it took to get them. Yeah, at least I would have respected him more if he leaned into it and said, yeah, I did the work. I agreed with that theory. But to be on the fence and kind of dodge the question of these kids whose lives you're affecting and now adults seems weak to me and, and uh, very cowardly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, he lost his wife at an early age and they had two little boys. Would if he had wanted them separated? I don't think so. They never were. Yeah. So people were not willing to apply this to their own lives or the lives of their friends and colleagues. Yeah. That, that I find is just... That's, that's a through line to pretty much everything we've talked about where uh, the twin experiments in the Auschwitz death camp, the Canada, uh, the, the not the Canada, um, the gay couple from Canada who had their twins... Uh, separated or attempt to be separated by customs moving into the country. And then also this case is that you have, what were you going to say? I was going to say that the consulate for the gay couples didn't try to separate the twins, but what, what, their, but their decision was a po- made separation a possibility. Yes, yeah, making separation. Okay. But they did not try making, to uh, They made a distinction between the boys, made a distinction between the boys. That's important. Yeah, in, in all of these cases, you have people making decisions that they would not apply to their own lives. And it seems like such a simple fact right. that if you want to pass a law or you want to uphold a certain uh, legal circumstance or perform an experiment that you would not do anything that you wouldn't want done to yourself or you wouldn't do anything that is uninformed or, or the, the the person who's participating is not fully informed and, and make sure it's ethical. But for whatever reason, you have people that are high up in science that just sometimes don't make those distinctions and it has terrible outcomes. Yeah. And, and Neubauer and Bernard had a lot of power. You know, they didn't have to answer to anybody. They could do what they wanted. And, you know, they probably thought of these adoptees. These were twins relinquished by unwed Jewish mothers. They probably thought of them as kind of lesser beings. Yeah. You know, they weren't part of the elite wealthy class that they associated <laughs> with. I think that's probably what they were thinking. Yeah. So anyway, what they did was horrific. And, you know, to take away that kind of an important celebrated relationship from people is just so cruel. It, it, there are no words for yeah, it. Yeah. And, and the potential rationale and deliberately divided to to separate twins to eliminate competition or allow them to become a more fuller version of themselves makes no sense because uh, I can't speak for being a twin but as a, a sibling the the competition is what makes childhood so great in many ways it it also you know can lead lead to some destructive situations but but be having another bond with someone who is your age or around your age that you're walking through life with literally and emotionally makes it so much more fulfilling makes it so much more uh adventurous and entertaining and it makes life in my opinion more worth living when you have a sibling or a pair bond like that that you can experience life with so the the rationale to me makes makes zero sense about separating the the twins from birth well the irony, too, is that when these singleton twins were placed, they were always placed in a family with an older sibling. And why? Because they didn't want them to be only children. And yet they weren't only children to begin with. And also along these lines, you know, when you 
are raised with a sibling, you learn how to negotiate your differences. And so when the triplets ran a restaurant together in New York City, there were some differences that eventually evolved and one of the triplets walked away. Now, if they'd grown up together, they might have developed some ways of coping with these kinds of things. But when you're not raised with somebody, you don't gain those mm. social skills for how you navigate these differences. And so that that's something else that Bradley Bernard never, ever even thought about. What's something that you personally understand more deeply about life because you are a twin? Something that you may not understand uh, if you weren't a twin yourself? I think the relationship with somebody who I grew up closely with and share the same age with and share many experiences in common. I think it gives us a real extra little bond. You know, we genetically are just like ordinary sisters, but because we're the same age, we're age matched. I think it gives us a greater understanding of life circumstances. We were going through things at the same time. We could support each other in graduate schools. We went to different grad schools, but we still could provide support to each other during the, the trying moments. And I think I think that's what it is. And also, you know, you're a minority in the population. You're one that's envied for what you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that to deprive someone of that, it certainly has given me a much greater appreciation for people connecting with biological relatives. You know, I think adoptees need to find biological relatives. I think the government has to make it as easy as possible. And in some ways, they're making it harder. So, I, of course, the Internet is making it easier. Um, New York City or New York State relax some restrictions in the last year or two, mm. which I think is all for the good. What is it like to be there when twins separated at birth meet for the first time? It's wonderful. I've witnessed a couple of different reunions and most of them are in disbelief and just kind of look at each other and touch each other. It's moments of disbelief. It's uncontrollable glee. It's just wonderful. And I have a lot of these on the tape. And when I show them to audiences, I feel that same excitement. It's almost as I explain in one place. It's almost so intense that I can't even look. It's like looking into a bright light. It's almost so intense you can't even watch it. It's just fabulous. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like to, to see a version, like pretty much the, you know, a version of me that I share so much with, but I had no idea this person even existed. If To just walk through the door I'm looking at right now, I don't even know, like, would I shut down? Would I touch their face? Would I be angry? Like, I don't even know the feelings that would, I couldn't begin to imagine right. what that scenario would be like. Right. Yeah. Well, it's great to have some of these reunions on tape, but they can also be reenacted in ways that are excellent, like the triplets. And what I'm hoping for is a documentary. I'm working with somebody who's exploring different possibilities, a documentary on gay fathers, twin sons. We're searching for funding. If anyone's interested, it would be absolutely wonderful to get that. That family is so important. They set such important precedents for adoption, for not so much for adoption, although in part, but for surrogacy, egg donation, gay marriage, twinning, uh, family, citizenship, so many, many things. I think that it would be just the greatest documentary ever Absolutely. So I'm sure you get a ton of emails from twins telling you stories of of how they met. What's what's the wildest twin story to ever hit your inbox? Um, Well, it's not so much hit my inbox, but one that I worked with. And those are Jack and Oscar. They have to be the most amazing story of separation and reunion. They were born in 1933 in Trinidad to a Romanian Jewish father and a Catholic a Catholic German mom. And when the marriage soured, when the boys were six months old, the mom took Oscar back with her to Nazi mm. Germany. 
where he was in the Hitler Youth and all of that. And of course, these men grew up with very different ideas yeah. and historical understandings and politics. And when they met the first time, when they were in their 20s, it really didn't work. But they met again in their 40s when they came to the University of Minnesota. And by then, they were able to put aside their differences and get to know each other as people. But the really fascinating thing that really stayed with me, Zach, is that both men realized that had their positions been switched, they would have endorsed an ideology that they currently despised. And that's really interesting because they would have been inculcated with the values and beliefs of their culture. Yeah. So so a situation like that would point to politics having less to do with genetics and more to do with the environment and the upbringing in that specific case. Yes. But you see, you have to, you have to differentiate the content from the actual practice or engagement in politics. For example, there seems to be, or or religion, let's take religion. So there's no gene for being Jewish or a gene for being um, Catholic, but the degree to which you might practice those religions seems to have a genetic component mm. to it. And now when Jack and Oscar were separated, they both dealt with this in similar ways. So Jack was afraid that somebody in Trinidad would discover his German roots. So he became very pro-British. Mm. Trinidad was under British rule at the time. Oscar was afraid somebody would discover his Jewish roots. Mm. So he became very pro-German. So they both became very nationalistic, but the content of their nationalism differed. Okay. That reflected S- the... And and it's also like if people are, say, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, I mean, you're born into a family that has that religion or you're born in China, you're born in Paris, you're born in uh, Trinidad. So that's something you can't change your nationality, but you can choose to relocate somewhere else. You can choose to practice a religion or not or engage in it a great deal or somewhat moderately. So you have these choices. But if you're born in Canada, well, you're Canadian. Yeah. I mean, you can relinquish your Canadian citizenship if you want. But yeah, you know the, no, that makes about. sense. Like the the geographical metaphor for religiosity, because I, I feel the same way about Catholicism that I was born into a Catholic household. So I was just Catholic for the longest time and went to church and, until I wasn't. So I, I can I can see that connection. My my specific religion has no genetic component to it, but my intensity or fervor for religiosity certainly does or probably does. Yeah. To end off, I, I'm curious in your, cause you have the uh, perspective of both a researcher and also a consumer of twin research and reading about other people's writings, having done the research yourself on twins. What do you think it is about the nature of twins that is so universally appealing and fascinating to the general public. I think it's the idea that we all grow up believing that we're unique individuals, that we look and act differently. So when we encounter identical twins who look and act so much alike, it challenges our beliefs in how the world should work. And many people, I think the vast majority, envy that twin bond, which is close, comes so effortlessly is not just judgmental and always accepting. And that's, I think, what people crave. And even people who may look at the twin bond as being somewhat claustrophobic, I think they still admire it, envy it, are intrigued by it. And I think that's what draws us all in. It's this idea of two things being so much the same when everything around us is yeah. different. So I, I think it's just, it's the rarity of this that I think people find so appealing, whether you're part of the public, a professional, a twin, yeah. whatever. It, it is so magnetic. It, I, it makes me think about the question of if you could have dinner with anyone in history, dead or alive, who would you pick? 
And if I also knew that I had a twin out there that I hadn't met, I would choose that twin over any person who's ever lived. And there, there's so many people that I would want to meet, but I, I would just have to meet my twin. Like I, I, I wouldn't be able to to turn that opportunity down. That's it's so enticing. Well, you know, I've asked people sometimes, what would you feel if you heard about a long lost cousin? Well, moderately interested. How about an aunt or uncle? Yeah. How about a parent you never knew? Absolutely. And a twin? No question. So there is this hierarchy of twinship being most important. And I know that for some of the Minnesota twins who had no idea that they were a twin, they began by looking for a parent. And when they discovered that they had a twin, that twin became the most important person. Oh, find. yeah. Dude. If, I, if I had a first cousin out there or even an uncle that I haven't met, I'm going to dinner with Abe Lincoln every single time. But if but if I but if I had a twin, it, it would it would be the twin for over anybody. I agree. Yeah. I'd pick the twin, too. Or if I discovered I was I, I had yeah. a triplet somewhere, I'd go yeah. after well, that third in a heartbeat. In Dr. A heartbeat. Nancy Siegel, thank you so much for your time. That that flew by. I just looked down at my timer. It's two hours and six minutes. That that was such a, a wonderful conversation. I had a blast. I, I hope that was fun for you as well. Wh- where can people follow you? Where's the best place for them to keep up with your work? Because you are such a prolific investigator and writer. I have a website, which is dr.nancysiegeltwins.org. Again, that's drnancysegaltwins.org. I'm also on Twitter at NLSegal. That's N-L-S-E-G-A-L. I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. Amazing. And everything we talked about will be linked in the description of the podcast where you're listening to this and watching this for people tuning in. And it will also be in the intro as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Nancy Siegel. It's been an absolute pleasure. 